and welcome to another edition of Gas Giants. Today, Tom and I are going to delve into the world of radio drama, something that we've actually been wanting to do for a while. We're going to be talking about the BBC production of, from I think 1995, of Len Dayton's Bomber. It was a very odd thing, wasn't it? Because they took over BBC Radio 4 for a whole day to do it. Yes, that's right. Interrupted yeah. by the mandatory news and sort of those standard announcements, but all the other sort of entertainment programming was pushed out by a whole yeah. day-long radio drama. Now, this is, of course, more, uh, interesting also because at that stage, the only radio station that uh, went all through the the night, basically, just permanently, was uh, was Radio Two. Yeah. So the the guy who who actually had the idea of producing this uh, as as a radio drama came from Radio One. He was then sort of funneled over to Radio Four, which is a little bit more drama friendly, and he, he sold them on this idea. But it, it did also involve stealing a certain amount of time from other set set programs. No, I, I think it stole a lot of time. According to what I read, it had uh, the Wikipedia page anyway had said, mm. you know, they they had to do certain news broadcasts, the standard news broadcasts, but yeah. the rest of the day was occupied by by this one enormous Event. sort of version of uh, and, and it's 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 a, it's, a, it's a, so in in scale it's it's quite something. Um, mm. The version that we've got is an audio book version edited down to about three hours or a bit more than three hours. Ah, okay. Uh, and that is available, I believe, in, you know, commercially, you can get it, for example, in Audible, is that the name of the thing? Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that's quite interesting about this is, I, well, I haven't read the book. Um, oh, I have. And, but I imagine it must be substantially different from the book, given how it's, how it's mm. done. The in particular, so Bomber is a book from when? From the mid sixties, was it? Uh, I believe nineteen seventy. Okay, a bit later then. And it's a, a a fictional account of a day in which uh, a bombing raid was a, a very big bombing raid mm. was undertaken by the RAF from from England to mm. uh, to Germany, and it's 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 completely fictional. I think the book. In the book, the date of the bombing raid was like June thirty first or something to make it obvious that it was all made up. Yeah, yes, um, exactly. And they they did that a little differently for the radio. Uh, what was it? Saturday, it's, February it's 18th. February the eighteenth. Yes, yeah, which in nineteen forty three that wasn't a Saturday. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the similar kind of thing. So I guess the book was involved the lives of the. Uh, of the people involved in the bombing, their families and so forth, their, mm. uh, their commanding officers, yeah. and the lives of the people who got bombed and the, uh, the radar operators in Germany, the lives of the, yeah. uh, the night fighters, the, you know, the, the Luftwaffe fighters who went to shoot down the bombers. Yeah. But the, the radio drama also has, and this is a very curious thing, these reminiscences from quite a number of people who sound, a lot of them, quite old. Yeah. Talking about wartime experiences. Mm -hmm. Well, um... Was that in the book? That would... Uh, no, that wasn't. Although I would like to just uh, just pull up a quote by, by Len Dayton here, which talks about the... Uh, about him, uh, his, his method of writing. I mean, not... Uh, it does mention Bomber, but this this is the way that he writes all of his books, actually. The question is, I'm interested in your writing process as an author. How have you approached the generation of ideas, the research, the structuring of your books? How much pre-planning went into your fiction projects, such as the nine books of the Samson series? And Dayton answers, I've met authors who like to make up their stories as they go along. That idea fills me with horror. I like to plan slowly and carefully. I use wall charts to which I can refer easily and quickly. 
For Bomber, my workroom was papered with charts and diagrams, maps and target maps, photos and character notes. A sectional drawing of a Lancaster Bomber was valuable to me. For some major characters, both German and British, I clipped photos of people from newspapers, magazines or snapshots. And he also did a lot of interviews. He'd been actually uh, pushing around the idea of some kind of uh, project for quite a while during the 60s. And he had actually used the used the opportunity to to source people and uh, and interview them. So the idea of interspersing uh, the text with interviews, it doesn't actually jar so much. Right. As I understood it, I mean, when he initially started thinking about or working on something like Bomber, he had he had a nonfiction in mind. Yeah. Well, he, he of course, he then went on to uh, to write a book called Fighter, which is nonfiction. Yeah. I think in, in uh, all in all, he wrote three, he wrote uh, Blitzkrieg, Fighter, and a book called Blood, Tears, and Folly, which are, which are all nonfiction. Yeah. Now, what was Dayton's wartime service anyway? Uh, I believe he was just uh, a bit too young to actually be involved in the war itself. I think he was a photographer for the RAF, which involved a certain amount of intelligence work, probably. Yeah, of course, uh, you know, when, um, when Harry Palmer turns up in 1961 is it the Epcrest file yeah, he's that. somebody who's um who's ended up being recruited into the into the intelligence services um out of the army yeah by the way so, have you, did you know there's a an itv series yes yes I, I haven't seen it but yeah. uh Dave and i are watching it now it's it's ah, pretty good right. Yeah. It's a lot different from the book, but you know, in a good way. Yeah. It'd be interesting. I, I quite like the film, actually. It's yeah, of... I've I think I've almost completely forgotten uh, the film. Uh, hmm. But you, when you see pictures of the of the young Kane, what's his name again? Uh, Michael Kane, yeah, as as Harry Palmer. When you see pictures of the young Mike, uh, Michael Kane, it's uh, it, the, the the memories come back rather gauzily. But uh, yeah, hmm. I'll have to have a look at okay. that again. Well, back to Bomber, because um, of course this this whole business of uh, of creating the the book out of charts, diagrams, uh, maps, and interviews, and all the rest of it was, of course, aided by an IBM computer. Yes, that's very surprising. When you when you sent me uh, links about that, mm-hmm. I thought, oh yeah, so Len Dayton was early on on the use of word processors. But yeah, extremely, extremely early. This was nineteen sixties, <laughs> and he uh, wrote, well, no, nineteen seventy. Yeah. He didn't actually buy the machine; he could only lease it. Yeah. And it was so big, it had to be like lifted through the front windows of his house with a crane. <laughs> yeah, I had to remove yeah. a window at the front of the house and, and sort of move it in that way and throw a crane. Yeah. So I mean, some I, I I haven't had time to read the the articles about that, but it's some sort of complicated contraption. Uh, sort of with, with cobbling together a number of things, including a Selectrix printer that probably is mm-hmm. also an input device. Uh, but yeah, he, he did mention that he used an enormous number of revisions, and so he had a mm. a typist who took his his the previous revision with all his notes on it and yeah. produced another version. And the and the uh, and the use of the word processor yeah. made that a lot less uh, labor intensive, I guess. Of course, he had been uh, always very fascinated with technology. Which and, shows in his work. Yeah, and uh, it's not not really a, look, take, a, a take coincidence. A, take a break to look something up and then talk. No, 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 it's okay. Um, it's, it's not really a coincidence that... Uh, the, one of the books, I think maybe two or three books before this one, was Billion Dollar Brain. Yeah. Which is all about computers. Yeah. Well, and spies. Well, yeah. yeah. Honestly, when I came to this, Len Dayton has sort of passed me by, it was my, uh, my mother's sort of entertainment 
you know, a little, a little pastime that she could just enjoy a, a Len Dayton book just about anywhere. And I thought it was all spy stuff, but no, um, Bomber is, it seems to me, a really serious attempt to set some things straight in the way that the stories about mm. the Second World War had been told in the UK. Certainly, yeah. I had come to the book uh, largely, it's it's strange. Uh, I've got quite a good story here because, um, of course, my dad loved Len Dayton. I think he had just about everything he'd ever written. And uh, I, at the age of 21, went off to study in Cologne. Of course, Cologne, in the middle of uh, the Ruhrgebiet, you know, what would have been a prime bombing target. Um, I was quite occupied during my first year there by the thought that people more or less my age had been in involved in dropping bombs on exactly this place where I now found myself. It's, it's quite a quite a moment to be to be brought up short and try to imagine that, you know. And um It's also so, difficult to imagine. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Well, yes, it it's, it faces you with a lot of questions. You can try it? to imagine it, but it's hard to do. Yeah. Yes. So um, I was very occupied by this question, and uh, so on one of my trips home, I picked up Bomber off the bookshelf, and uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, I was uh, sort of reading it in the in the kitchen of the Studentenwohnheim, when I was actually sort of verbally abused for reading this thing <laughs> at all. So what, uh, by, by, by one of my fellow students who said, what are you reading that for? And uh, I said... Who was the well, fellow student, uh, a German or...? Yeah, a German. And did the German know the book? No. So they're but, probably uh, guessing what it might be like. But yes, they said, you know, do you, uh, I bet you read bet you read war books all the time. I said, no, I don't. I said, this is... And I, I really didn't. Yeah. Uh, I said, you know, this is the first time that I've picked something like this up. And it is it is just because I I'm sort of a bit amazed at finding myself here, and uh, and because I'd I'd always stayed away from stuff like that. You yeah, know, me too, um, actually. Um, yeah, my, I mean, all those parents... kids at school who used to hand around Sven Hassel paperbacks. Yeah, <laughs> no, my parents discouraged it. Yeah, and well, they didn't stop me, but they took a very dim view of it. Well, my, my dad was actually very interested in uh, in military history, but it was um, it was mostly older stuff. Uh, it would have been um, the English Civil War, the American Civil War, and uh, things like uh, the Crimea. Mm -hmm. he, uh, he he knew a lot about all of that kind of stuff, up to a certain extent. The First World War, uh, the Second World War, not so much. But uh, but like I said, he had bomber. Well, he had the complete works. So. Yeah, he had the complete works. <laughs> but but let's be clear, bomber. I don't think now. Like I said already, no, I've steered clear largely from that sort of stuff. But it's unlike the the many books and movies that showed the heroism and ingenuity and team spirit mm. and all those fine things that the Allies mm. put in in order to beat the Hun. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just not like that. It's, no. it's a very, I think it's attempting to be a very realistic look at what it's like to experience mm -hmm. this kind of life. So in this particular case, we've got people who fly planes and the support staff around them, and fire, people who fly both, um, British bomber, uh, you know, strategic, big, mm -hmm. heavy, strategic bomber aircraft, load them up with all kinds of ghastly munitions. Yeah. The people who support them, for example, the ground crew who repair the machines, who load them up, who fuel them, and the military command. So in other words, the, the, the commanding hierarchy there. Then what yeah. else have we got? We got a little bit from their families. Mm. And on the other side of the North Sea, we've got a radar station 
on the Dutch coast, on mm-hmm. the IJsselmeer. It's also a radio listening station. And some of our protagonists, so let's call them, you know, I don't know, characters, mm-hmm. are stationed there. They have, they, they also uh, fly night fighters from there. So the Luftwaffe, uh, you know, mm-hmm. flies out of, out of there. The target is, is a fictional industrial zone. So it's factories and, oh, I think there was a Gestapo base or something like that. Mm-hmm. But owing to a, a very bad weather forecast and unexpected weather and bad navigation and bad luck with things mm-hmm. going wrong with the navigation, uh, they end up bombing a, a civilian town instead. Mm. Um, it's the civilian town that's fictional. Krefeld is really is real enough. And then we get quite a lot of the detail of the lives of the people. What's the name of that town? Altausen or something? Altgarten. 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 Yeah. So this market is a medieval market town. Uh, a lot of mm. wood construction, the kind of thing that burns easily. Mm. But it's got a modern hospital and you know, wartime lives. Mm. Uh, so we get to we get to know some of the people who live there, mm-hmm. and we get to live through, or it's described we, what what the what the effects of getting bombed are like, mm. and I think that the characters are generally presented in a rather neutral way. Um, Certainly, yeah. most mostly, and I mean neutral to the point of being compassionate. In other words, they're humans. Mm. Um, for example, on the German side. We have a combination of people, including people who, who talk about, um, you know, who talk uh, approvingly of the Nazis and the Führer mm. and Goebbels himself, as well as others who clearly uh, tone that stuff down and just say the necessary mm. Heil Hitler that yeah. they'd be in trouble if they didn't say it. Yeah, and including those who talk about how you know the Luftwaffe pilots—they're defending us. It's. Mm. This is something that we, you know, mm, yeah. they, they, they see that as, uh, you know, necessary as a war on and these guys that they have to fight to defend us. So a lot of different points of view, uh, but everybody presented as more or less human. And we've got some villains on the German side as well as one or two on the, on the British side. Sort of, well, mm-hmm. not necessarily vin- villains, but nasty types. Yeah. Um, so the whole thing's very balanced. Yeah, And then when it comes to the description of the bombing and the dramatization of mm-hmm. what the consequences are like for on the mm-hmm. ground, but also for the bomber pilots and the fighter pilots, because they're having battle in the sky. Mm-hmm. I got to say, listening to that on this three-hour audiobook yeah, version was harrowing. It was one it was of the most... Absolutely horrible. It's one of the most awful things... I've I've kind of put myself through recently. I had to yeah. pause and pace up and down rather often. Yeah, I, I had exactly the same experience. Now, I wondered, actually, uh, as, as an example, recently there was uh, a TV series made out of The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. And the author of that said that um, a lot of that came across on screen. Uh, it was perfectly accurate compared to what she'd written. Mm. But um, I'm very sorry, I can't remember the name of the author right now. Margaret Atwood. uh, Yes. But, of course it is, yes. Margaret Atwood said that what she had, it was an actual depiction of what she'd written, but it came across on screen as so much stronger than how she'd written it. Yes. And I I think this is kind of the same, because obviously this was was, uh, pretty unpleasant in the book, but hearing it, and particularly hearing it over headphones, yeah. it's absolutely horrific. Yeah. No, I think and, it's... And I, I, I really had trouble to get through the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was pretty rough. I mean, I was, I was trying to think back. Have there... What are the times that I've felt sort of like that? I don't watch TV news, uh, basically because... Having a TV yeah. in the house is is, is is very bad for both of them. We, we tend to just watch it and, and then just get unhappy as a result. Yeah. So we got twice in our lives, we tried it and then just got rid of it because it was just, mm. just so destructive. But it's you can't read the news about war and understand it the same as getting real pictures of, of it. 
it's just not the same. No. That's why, of course, uh, propaganda about war uh, has, has uh, I mean, certainly the Americans, I think other countries too, since the 70s have so carefully managed uh, the dissemination of, inf- you know, visual information about, mm. about their activities. But it, the... I think actually before then, even, I think you can go back to the First World War. Well, yes. As, uh, as, as long as moving images have actually shown battle or, or war circumstances, there has been some issue with censorship. Yes, I think that's true. I, but there was, a, it was, I mean, certainly in the American side, there were, uh, or, or I've read about important innovations that were made in how the press was allowed to, was allowed access to war zones. Uh, the, yeah. The, American, yeah the, the rules of engagement there, in other words, how the Pentagon would, would allow uh, press to be involved and and by you know by now it's it's very very carefully managed mm-hmm. but yeah anyway that's a different topic that, but my mm. anyway my my point is yes to confirm this uh, this thing that reading something is a lot different um mm. so it was in that respect i think a very uh, so yeah i was i was thinking about what so seeing the airplanes fly fly into the world trade center the film of that is is absolutely shocking but it's over mm. very quickly yeah the time i visited dachau i mean it's a lot cleaned up but there are opportunities to really imagine right there and that's mm. that's sort of something that takes a while to recover from but but this is up there you know listening mm. to listening to this so yeah your friend or your uh, your student colleague mm. back then who caught you reading it mm was probably imagining something quite different from what what it really is. Yeah, because of course the thing that comes uh, out of uh, both the both the book and this and this radio adaptation and the principal thing that you take away from it is the futility of everything. Yeah. Well, I mean the 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 story centers around the whole thing going horribly wrong. Yeah. So to be clear the uh they're sent on a what could be you know, strategically irrelevant, a, a relevant bombing raid uh, that could usefully take out mm. some industrial capacity, industrial capacity that's being used to create machines of war. And, and, and it's so it ends up being a slaughter. But bear in mind that the, the British went on to deliberately just bomb non-strategic mm. populations yeah. uh, because they were kind of stuck for anything else to do. They had the capacity to bomb stuff and and they were they were they were stuck for targets. We've already talked about Dresden on this podcast before. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That was, and the and this is actually discussed in 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 Bomber in this in this radio play version is the concept that we're going to bomb and and kill and cause so much population destruction that the German people will be so demoralized that it'll turn against their leaders, and that concept just doesn't make any sense. No. How does a bombed out population accomplish that? How do they take control? Yeah. Uh, yeah. How do they make make their leadership change direction? How do they do that? I mean, you could argue that what happened in in Japan uh was a bit like that. They were um Hiroshima was an industrial city. Uh, Nagasaki mm. was a population center, I understand, but the, I think the the decision surrender there was uh was kind of on the cards anyway. Uh, mm. They were done, and yeah. and at that point the, the the nukes kind of made the decision not through the population, but mm. at the uh, you know yeah. at at the elite level, at the ruling elite level. <laughs> so so the the question that's that's left at the end of this book, which is, we just bombed ordinary people, people like us, you know, but they happen to be German. The question that's left at the end of this book, yes, this 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 amazing futility, but it's worse than futility, isn't it? It's mm. it's yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I want to say vandalism, but it's worse than that. I, so yeah, it's so that says something about the quality of the production, I guess, mm. that yeah. it was so effective for, or affective for both of us. Yes. Yeah. Well, certainly. Uh, certainly didn't find it uh, terribly comfortable listening. No, it's um, 
So it's an edited down version from the, mm-hmm. from the original. And you wonder mm-hmm. what that might have been like for listeners of the original. How many people would have been able to follow the story along all the way through? Well, uh, the experiment did then get repeated. Yes, once. Uh, once in, um, in uh, yes, on Armistice Day in 2011. A long so, time later. Yeah. And a long time yeah. after the book came out. Yes. Which yeah. is very cool, really. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't really think of too many other things like that. Where they've, uh, where where some, where they've, where you've got some dramatic things stretched over an entire day. No, I can't think of any. No, there's, you know, you can do some uh, live coverage of very, very big events from sort of like dawn till dusk, like a royal wedding or something. But mm-hmm. no, I can't, I can't think of anything else. And normally, uh, long productions like this get serialized, so you get an hour a week or mm-hmm. whatever. Very clearly, here the book is written describing a day in the. Mm-hmm. In, the, in these people's lives and how, ever, how things came together for these mostly British, mm-hmm. they weren't just British, but mostly British and German people. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, the book really falls into two halves because um, there's all the preparation for, uh, for, the, for the raid, which takes up the entire first half of the book. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the second half really kicks off with the, with the aircraft taking off. Yeah, it's um, about it's about the same division in the in the three hour one we've got. Yeah, what I was uh, what I yeah what I was trying to think of a moment ago, and I've now remembered it was um, there's a line in the book which has been left out of of this adaptation that we listened to, but it's actually the inspiration for the whole book. Somebody said that they uh, that when when the plane comes back from a bombing mission, they put uh, they put some kind of stamp on it or a mark on it. Yeah. Um, Len Dayton kind of thought that was that was kind of like the machine was going off on these missions. He kind of had this uh, had this uh, vision of uh, the machines fighting the war against each other, yes. and the people just being completely um, yes. Supernumerary. Yes, I, I've I've read that as well. Um, in you know when I was getting ready for this, uh, mm-hmm. he uh, one of the things one of the technical um, things about this kind of bombing was that um, I think it was at the beginning of 1943 or thereabouts that Obo radar came into operation, mm-hmm. which was a very sophisticated navigation system. So it used radar and uh, radio transceivers on airplanes. Uh, mm. In order to, in order to guide from, so there are radio transmitter stations, two radio transmitter stations in UK, and the flight time of the of the signals that they sent and the signals mm-hmm. that the plane sent back allowed uh, extremely accurate tracking of the plane, so that the plane could fly in a circle, in a circle, a very specific distance from one of the radio transmitters, and mm. then bombs away when it meet, intersects with the circle from the other. If you can kind of picture that. Um, mm. And this allowed accurate navigation when you couldn't see. Mm. Because, I mean, today we've got GPS, everything's easy. You can kind of get computers mm. to do it all. But back then, until that kind of radio navigation, you could do radio navigation across your own territory. But how do you do that uh, somewhere over Germany? when you're not allowed to control the radios that are on the ground there. No, exactly. Yeah. So, but this actually solved that problem. Now, the, the drama or the book uh, described these special radar equipments as being uh, the, the Hornet aircraft, which is a smaller two-engine uh, two aircraft that led the bombing, what do they call that, a convoy. I, I describe mm-hmm. it, they call it a stream, but it was something like 700 heavy aircraft. Yeah. So Lancaster and Halifax aircraft which it must have been a horrific sight and they were led by uh, a small number like six of these little hornet aircrafts which had the special oboe radar equipment in them so that these could then lead the uh, 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 target but owing to bad luck the uh, the hornets all 
either their equipment failed or they mm. uh, they crashed or shot down and they basically lost the, that accuracy. You know, one of the things that's, um, that's evident here is you've got this sort of um, escalation of technical sophistication. Yeah. In other words, again, the machines fighting the machines. When mm-hmm. it's the human's job to build the machines uh, mm. that are going to be better than the other guy's machines and so that, they can go and, so that the machines can go and fight. Mm. Um, and there is a lot of technical description in here. So mm. Tom Baker, as in the fourth doctor, mm. as in uh, narrator of Little mm. Britain, mm-hmm. is the narrator here. So he, he kind of has the biggest role to play in, mm. uh, as voice actor in this drama. And so he describes a lot of things, but he does describe a lot of technical things and in a very neutral, yeah. in a very neutral way. And it's, these are described, it's interesting, you, you, get the, you get the sense that they're being described in a way that's going to be just, you know, at the limit of understandable to an ordinary listener or an ordinary reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather like a Lendaton book, you know, it's, it makes it sort of exciting that tech stuff is going on. Yeah, but it's not. Yeah. Oh. But it doesn't get to the point of being boring, nerdy stuff. Mm. Uh, no, it's like this gadgets is... in the James Bond or something. <clears throat> well, I, I was just going to say this. This comes back to one of the prob- one of the things that Anthony Burgess said about this kind of book when you know uh, yeah. his agent was trying to turn him into a bestseller author. Yeah. He said that. Um, the attraction with a lot of these books is that they they explain a lot of technical stuff yeah. to an everyday public. So, you know, Neville Shute explained a whole lot of stuff about flying to ordinary mm. people. John Le Carre explained the sort of ins and outs of espionage to yeah. ordinary people. Len Dayton, of course, does it for a lot and of the later, technical side. And then later Dan Brown did it with uh, with codes. Ciphers, really? Oh mm. God! Okay, yeah. Actually, my main problem with Dan Brown is that he just can't write. But we'll, <laughs> we'll I, leave that for another show. And it's not a it's not a problem for me because I'm not going to read his books. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's it is it's definitely a part of it. Um, and that and that really kind of comes across here. We've got pretty chilling in this mm. in this one where we've got the description of one of the uh, Luftwaffe night fighter pilots mm. uh, describing in detail what it was like also with the accompaniment of the narration from mm. Tom Baker of what it was like to shoot down a, mm. a British bomber now you've got to think about this the, uh, the night fighter aircraft has got these two gigantic cannons fitted into it and they can fire these big munitions and pretty mm. rapidly but they can't point them Right. Mm. The way to the way to aim the cannons is to point the aircraft itself. Right. So that's that takes very high level of skills. And if you want the if you want the shooting to be effective, you've got to get close and be absolutely on target. And they describe this maneuvering in in detail. Mm. And it's and there's a guy who did it was one of those who took part, who did that kind of work, who who took part as, and he's got a German accent, I guess he was, he actually mm. flew, flew those kinds of missions and lived mm. to tell the tale afterwards for this BBC production. Mm. The thing that has uh, remained in the whole production, um, although the, there have been one or two, one or two sort of um, side stories have been cut out, some things have been reassembled compared to the book. But one of the things that has remained in it is something that I suppose is central to most of Len Dayton's work, be it espionage fiction or whatever, which is this sort of huge fury about class. Yeah, it's really clear in this. It it really is, yeah. Yeah, because one of the... Uh, you remember I was talking about the villains. Mm. The villain on the on the English airbase is his. Um, so we've got what's one of our characters' names? We've got Sam oh, Lambert. Sam Lambert. 
Mm-hmm. And his, uh, was it Wing Commander, is called uh, Smiley or something, Smiley, whatever. I thought it was Sweet. Sweet, there you go. Excellent, yes. Sweet mm-hmm. Smiley. No, uh, Sweet. And as was pretty common back there, the officer class came from British public school. What that means is aristocracy, basically, or something close to it. Mm-hmm. And... The, the the real separation those oh, I don't know how to put it into words real real quick but the British class system the officers there so so the if you're going to end up fighting how do you position yourself if you're not actually English public school stuff if you are a good public school boy then uh, then you're going to be an officer and obviously going to be chummy with all the rest of them and you can make you know get the various advantages of that mm-hmm. class solidarity but for a but for working class or middle class oik, what's the choice? You got our our, our hero here, Sam Lambert. He um, was very clear that he did not want a commission. He did not want to be a, become an officer um, mm. because he didn't want to be one of them. Mm. He was so disgusted by their privilege mm. and behavior, and frankly, their incompetence. Mm. Yeah, so the, our, on, on the English side of things, it's um, the villain is basically a villain because of class privilege. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, I mean, this, like I said, this goes through all of the espionage books as well, and I think that's probably one of their uh, one of their appeals. Yeah, is be. that uh, yeah that people sort of imagine themselves to be uh, you know a Bernard Sampson particularly. Uh, you know, there's there's later books where where he's he's surrounded by upper class you know, twats, and <laughs> he's the only one who's competent. Yeah, yeah. and, and <laughs> but he's did, always passed over for, for, for promotion. Yeah, <laughs> isn't it interesting when? Yeah, and it's nicely it's it's nicely on show in the in the um, in the TV version of Ipcress that we're just watching as well, um, mm-hmm. and you know how we like to think in terms of. The position of these artifacts within a historical art. Yes, it's interesting to think of the uh, of Dayton's sixties work as being a good time for democratization uh, mm-hmm. of of that kind. And I, I, you know, as the empire itself was very clearly in decline, there was at least for some of the sixties a uh, actually in the fifties and the sixties in the UK there had been a, a good deal of economic uh, progress. And of course, the you know the uh, the post-war flourishing of the Labour Party. So, it it's interesting to think that they uh, there there being a market for a a kind of fiction which is um, thoroughly egalitarian and makes the upper class twits seem like the oh. upper class, uh, and not just twits. They're 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 they are twits, but they're also uh, just untrustworthy, mm-hmm. um, self-seeking yeah. and untrustworthy, and and and, and sort of. Yeah, rather distasteful. Mm. And then today, it seems it seems not the same because it seems to me that that work that again the mainstream entertainment media doesn't trust, no longer trusts the middle class or the working class. Um, mm. And so we have now, you know, this combination of different kinds of heroes, but not that many. Uh, you've got the the avenging angel type vigilante things that I find so distasteful. And you've got, I mean, I, I'm thinking about something like Kingsman, where you've got exactly the opposite kind of relationship. You've got a, you know, a working class oik who's who's um, recruited to be a a spy, basically. Mm. He's in the thrall of uh, of an upper class sophisticate. Yeah, but. Um... I think we've kind of, we, you know, one of our questions that we always ask is, uh, is if something like this could be made today or would it look different? But I think we've kind of answered our own question with this because it's, um, it's a book from 1970 that was made into a radio event in 1995 and then repeated in 2011. So it probably, it obviously does have resonance today. I, I think it could. I think something, I think we, we probably should have more of this kind of stuff because yeah. we're we're back in we're back in another period of war where uh, mm. the different sides are mm. seem to be acting like that's a good thing and we should do more. We should yeah. escalate, yeah. Which I find um, quite horrifying. Um, yeah, and 
not to put too fine a point on it, but Americans seem to want uh, Ukrainians to fight our proxy war with with Russia um, until there's nothing left over there. Um, And maybe they should, you know, go and see what that fighting's really like. Mm. I mean, yeah, sorry. And then, you know, if, 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 well, we can't have a settlement, we can't, like, sort this out. So what are we going to do? The only option is to escalate. And what's that going to be like? You know, with an actual land war between NATO and Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, seriously, that's now. the way you want to go? Really? Mm-hmm. It's just horrifying to me. It's like, so we need a bit more like this. I, it, it, yeah. it bugs me enormously that the presentation of America's wars to the American public is so ridiculously sanitized. Um, you know, for example, most, most Americans don't even know about the Somalia war, the Yemen war. Um, they don't even know what's going, what the situation is in, in, in Syria. Mm. And these are all American wars. And what... Uh, this is just not... It, it, I mean, let alone not seen, but the... You know, Americans are quite capable of being as anti-war as anybody else, so long mm. as yes. how... So long as just how awful it is, is actually displayed. So long as the truth of the matter is there. And so that's why I felt that at least... That aspect of uh, of this bomber, um, you know, it it's it's harrowing to go through. I don't want anybody to have to go through it, but I just mm. sort of feel like, well, what's the alternative? Then then the war pigs get to conduct these things, you know, sort of secretly and privately, but they're still mm. just as monstrous. Yeah, and uh, of course we've now got the situation, literally, that uh, that Len Dayton imagined. Uh, with the with the machines going off to fight against each other, you know, with uh, with drones and stuff. Yes, you're you're right. The the um, you know the drone warfare is obviously a, a very important development now, and it makes you wonder the because the American superiority is primarily a, a naval superiority, mm-hmm. uh, but you wonder what swarms of drones might be like. The thing is, ships. All you need to do is start one good fire on a ship, and it's finished. Mm. Um, but how many? How many drones can a can a ship shoot down? Mm. I don't know. Um, mm. But so yes, there's that. But there's also the other part of this um, is uh, the cyber war. You know, networks and computers are my business. I I understand mm. something about network security and computer security, and I know that the vast majority of American private sector infrastructure is vulnerable. So one wonders mm. if if a war were really to start, I have to assume that both sides are already ready with, with some pretty amazing cyber weaponry. We just hardly any of us know what that's going to be like, but I, I do know that the scale of the damage there could be could be extraordinary. Mm. But that's machines fighting against machines. They're, they're, not, mm-hmm. even, yeah, they're not even moving around. They're just online. Gotcha. You know, it's just code. It, there's the amazing thing about computers is that they... Mm-hmm. is So we talk over our podcasts using words. Words are symbols. They're not real. They, mm-hmm. we, can, we can put enough of them together to describe something. Mm-hmm. Right? But those descriptions aren't real. They're just... That's not the thing. They just describe it. Yeah. Right? Or they can be plans. So they can be, we can, we can put more complicated things together. We can put strategies and organize mm-hmm. things. So obviously it's a powerful trick. But that's all computers deal with. Right? Mm. Those ones and noughts, they're all just symbols. It's all, it's not real. And yet, that's where, that's the space in which war is going to a lot of a lot of the coming wars are going to take take place. Yeah, machines against mm-hmm. machines, big deal. One thing that I that, that that was quite striking in in this was that among the British fighter pilots was the the complicated psychology of being able to do this the kind of work that they do. Uh, yeah. Because for the for the people that are, are flying uh, these planes or working in the planes as they go on these missions, that it's a ridiculously dangerous activity. Lots of them die in the process. Every time they fly a raid, you know, 
I don't know, four, five, six percent, maybe worse on a bad day, are lost. Mm. And the they, there's a good deal of discussion about how people handle that and the cruelty with which people were punished if they refused to mm. do the duty that they had signed up to do. Mm. Uh, and the extraordinary word and abbreviation that they used, the name for the condition of losing your nerve, which was a lack of moral fiber, whatever moral fiber might look like. Um, but the there were two, there were sort of two parts to this. What kind of terror must it be like to keep doing this? Mm. Not necessarily every day, but to, to fly 10, 20, 50 missions um, with people, your friends dying, with people on your own aircraft dying, and keep doing that. And, and, and these kids being so young, and, and nobody back at base unless you're ready to take the punishment, which is going to be very severe, prepared to, you know, to express fear, to, you know, know, to, to talk about it. So they had to, they had ways of hiding it. And one of the ones, one of the, one of the um, um, reminiscences, I think, I don't know if this is in the, in the book was that described, described it as, as though it was sort of a, a game, sort of like the game, the sports games that that schools might play against each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to get the Germans today, and it's uh, well, we're, yeah. we're going to do a good job. And uh, a way of keeping keeping positive when there was just so much death around. For me, this is this is sort of a, 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 almost impossible to imagine. I mean, the kinds of things that frighten me today are tiny in comparison. Mm. Uh, but these these people managed to carry on doing that work, most of them. And in the end, Sam Lambert, after the, mm. the mission in which he, uh, you know, um, he's done like 40, 48 missions or something, this is 48th mm. mission. And after, after this, you know, he's a very, he's been a very good pilot and, and he gets the punishment. He has to, you know, clean latrines yeah. for the rest of the war when he refuses to fly another mission. Yeah. Yeah, no, and uh, it was um, it was kind of a good point that they that they got people who'd actually been involved in that to say that yes, that was that was actually cruel. Yeah, you know, that was because um, you know a lot of the uh, oh, I don't know you would you would think that uh, the people who'd been through that would think that you know or you know, not actually, not actually been punished, but just would say that, oh yes, well, you know, we had to, you had to be tough, and you had to go through with that. But um, a lot, if you read up about things like shell shock, uh, you'll discover that um, the people who suffered from shell shock in the Second World War, who'd actually been decorated for bravery in the First World War. <laughs> Yeah, there was uh, was absolutely no guarantee when when something like that can can hit. Yeah, yeah, of course. No, I mean it takes uh, a it takes a uh, it's just not a normal thing for uh, no. for any human to be able to cope to, with, to that stuff. Be able to and, with that stuff, and that's yeah. why it's very difficult to find soldiers to f- who, are, who are actually going to reliably kill other people with a gun if when they can see them. You know, this is. I think this is why the machines partly are, are so important. Yeah. You know, right. Well, anyway, if nothing else, this entire thing proves the viability of a form like radio. Yeah, I'm going to give you a little bit of a pushback on that. I mean, frankly, mm-hmm. in the end, I was thoroughly convinced. But early on, there's this thing about, I don't know if it's just a BBC radio play thing, but... There's a quality to a lot of the sound effects, which is very stock, you know, and the and the techniques really? for, for dramatizing. Yes. You know, like here's the, here's the sound of a window breaking. I, I remember when we were kids watching mm. Doctor Who or whatever, you know, but noticing how the BBC used the same sound every time a window got mm. broken. And it became a standing joke for me and my pal. 
we even sort of like learn, but the same, you got the same sound effect here. Yeah, for me, I think that when you become aware of these uh, little production devices, it it's distracting. That was, I only had that, I only had that problem early on. So I'm not, mm. I, I think if you've, you know, if you've got a, a fondness for, for radio drama, mm. I don't see any problem here. I'd like to actually direct our listeners also to the to the article which I've put up on the Substack page, written by the producer, which which talks about a lot of the. Um, so long article is very interesting. It talks about the history of the production and how he got the whole thing off the ground. It also talks about some of the techniques they used in recording, mm-hmm. uh, which which actually first of all he was convinced if I don't record the engines of a Lancaster, I'm going to get letters. Yeah. <laughs> People are going to write in and say, there's no way that wasn't a Lancaster. You know, I know the sound of that engine. So he had to, um, he had to actually go up in one of the few remaining Lancasters and record the sound of the engines from within. Yeah. Uh, I think starting it as well from outside had to be recorded. Yeah. And then the, the, for, Quite a lot of the flying bits of this uh, this play, the actors were stuffed into the various bits of the aircraft um, that they were supposed to be in. So the the guy who was who was the tail gunner was actually stuffed into the tail gunner's compartment with mm-hmm. a microphone. Yeah. So just from that point of view alone, the sort of sound stage is quite interesting on this production. Yes, I found some of the effects quite effective. For example, in uh, Altgarden, uh, it was mm. raining. And, uh, you know, at one point I actually looked out the window. It hasn't started raining. You know, I had my headphones on. Mm. So, yeah, it, 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 um, radio drama has a particular, um, a particular sort of genre. It has a, there's, there's, it's, it's its own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that by the time this was made, it was already fairly well evolved, at least in the UK. Um, mm. And I'm not sure that's everybody's cup of tea, but I don't see why it couldn't be plenty of people's cup of tea. I yeah. mean, I, I talk about, or at least I try to talk about on this podcast music that I know a lot of people aren't going to like, but so mm. what, you know? Um, mm. So, yes, I, I mean, in the, in the age of podcasting, it seems mm-hmm. to me that this would be at least much more appealing than you know and a lot of the a lot of the most popular styles of production uh, of podcasts um mm. the, the this american lifestyle of npr things it, um little sound effect here and then some more narration and maybe an interview there and some more sound effects and some more narration mm-hmm. that smooth and smarmy effect no don't like it mm. So, but in the age of, of podcasting that we're in right now, with uh, with people ready to to deal with the distribution via Spotify or whatever mm. it is that they like, the Apple Podcasts, why not? Let's do some drama. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think there's a lot of life in it, but uh, but you'd have to, you know. You'd have to go a long way before you equaled um, something quite as sophisticated as the BBC. Yes, and they've had a lot of practice. Let's face it; they had a lot of practice. But also, you then even for the BBC, this is a pretty high end. Yeah, uh, bomber is uh, goes beyond like you've like you've just described. It's yeah. very interesting to me to imagine how it might have been edited or or scripted and edited because it's such a complex. Um, such a complex piece with or with the combination of uh, many many relatively short bits of narration uh, mm-hmm. which are presumably done in a voice booth all these reminiscences where if you listened all the way through the credits that's a long long mm. list of people whose reminiscences were were used mm. that all had to be sort of somehow stuffed in mm. which is a lot different from the uh, because I mean, in in the in the in the traditional BBC Radio approach to drama, it can be done in a very efficient manner. Mm-hmm. Um, so long as you know what you're doing, you can almost do it in real time. In fact, some radio dramas are done live. Mm. Uh, yeah. But this clearly wasn't done like that. 
Mm -hmm. uh, so it's just curious to me how it um, how it might have been cut. Yeah. Or yeah plans, well, I, I know that. Cut, you know. Uh, I do know that all the narrations were done um, in one in one chunk on yep. the same day, which speaks a lot to Tom Baker's abilities as an actor. Yeah. As well, because uh, you know they, it doesn't sound like that when they turn up in the in the play itself. Yeah. That guy was born to narrate. Yeah, he was kind of um, good example. Just uh, just to give give uh, our listeners a good example of something that was done live, it's always worth listening to as well. It's, it's pretty pretty well done. Is the uh, is the War of the Worlds, the famous Orson Welles War of the Worlds? Yeah, uh, you can find that in all kinds of places. Maybe I'll maybe I'll find up a copy and uh, find a copy and stick it up on the on the Substack. I'm sure you but will. It's fairly well, easy to find in one of your. And one of your uh, view, YouTube viewing sessions where you go click around there and, and copy and paste the links into your Substack. <laughs> yeah, it seems a bit short this time at the moment. I'm sure you'll get around Yeah, to at it. the moment it is, yeah. Uh, but uh, I hope to expand it before we actually drop this show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before we say bombs away on the show. Oh, don't, please. Let's not, God, yeah. Let's not drop any bombs. Oh, yeah, the, the technical description of the bombs and what they do and how they work. Oof. Yeah. Imagine being the designer of those things. Yeah. <laughs> what a job. Yeah, people do it, though. It's big business. Yeah, yeah it is. God. Yeah, it was so, it was a close thing that I didn't end up in that in that business myself. Ah, that's true. I was yeah. forgetting that. Yeah, when I got out of um, when I got uh, got my first job, I was expecting to be working on working for Plessy in some technology that would end up in uh, military applications. And then at the oh. last minute, they invited me to join a, uh, a telecommunications research project, and I managed oh. to avoid the whole thing. It was such a relief. Wow, I mean, it's just—it's such a big, you know, for engineering. It's such a big part of the uh, of the mm. demand for for engineers is in death and destruction. Yeah, think how many engineers it takes to to design a new, you know, carrier fleet. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, or actually think of all the people who made choices in life just because. If they had actually gone into uh, engineering or chemical engineering or something like that, they knew that they would have ended up in uh, in armaments or defence or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and there's a lot of people who've who've found themselves in that position. Yeah, a lot of them end up being discussed by us because <laughs> they end up going into the arts world. <laughs> yeah, deeply affecting radio production. Yeah, and uh, I think one that we could, as I say, not a comfortable listen, but I can honestly think that we should be recommending this to oh, our Of course. Yeah, yeah. I, um, it's, it's only, well, the one that we've got that you can find on Audible and whatnot, it's three hours long, so it's not mm. a huge commitment. It's pretty modest even compared to a couple of episodes of our silly podcast. Mm. Um, yeah. But it's uh, it's 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 a window into the past in a number of different ways. Um, it mm. gives you 1943, but also uh, the zeitgeist of when it was written and published as a book. And, you know, it's got Len Dayton's 1970s mind, um, mm. and it's got 90s BBC technical production, mm. uh, and it's it's worth being reminded how completely out of control things get in war and and how this seems to be a, a fairly fairly normal recurring thing and it's up to us everyone to not do that yeah yeah do you have any enemies in russia personally <laughs> you have a problem with them oh, i don't nor in can't. ukraine nor in belarus and, and so forth probably some conductors somewhere well <laughs> it's it's not my it's not my war. No. You know, I mean, I'm not. I know we try to avoid the topically political here, but you know, given mm. what I just said before about 
yeah, it's worth yeah. it. It's worth it, you know. I'll throw that in. Yeah. All right. Mm. There's something good going to happen after this. You're going to bed, right? Yeah, I am. I'm you? going to. No, no, I'm gonna gonna go uh, off and uh, read some more Francisca Linkerhand, mm-hmm. and uh, tomorrow's another day. Yes, and when's this? Uh, when's this cello concerto going to be over? Uh, that's Friday night. <laughs> tomorrow, I'll tell, tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. Actually, I've got to go to the offices of one of the newspapers in Porto and play some stuff that we're doing on the concert on Saturday night for the Wind Quartet. It's the, the same program as I, as I recorded that last time with that microphone. Mm-hmm. So we, we, got another, we got another show of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to the, to the uh, Journal de Noticias, which is the local newspaper, and they're going to record us playing it and do some interviews, and that's going to get uh, put out on their website. Is that so, going to be a video recording? Yes. Cool. So that, that'll be kind of cool. That's You're going to get dressed up for that? I think it's just black trousers and a, and a single-coloured shirt hmm. tomorrow. Uh, there'll, there'll, be a, there'll be a dark suit for Saturday night. but <laughs> Nice. So, yeah, I've got that to look forward to. So we can look at that later, once they get it published. Yeah, exactly. I think I just put up a uh, a new dog video today. Oh, yeah? That's short, 45 seconds. Yeah, so it's it's that time of year where the evenings are an hour longer, all of, you know, all of a sudden, from one day oh, to the really? next. So I can go walk the dogs of war. <laughs> in you daylight. That, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit frightening, really. <laughs> Hold on, what do, you do, what do you put it up on? YouTube, should be there. YouTube, okay, it's not there yet. Right, I haven't got it on.